Well, it's hard to believe Vacation Bible School is almost here, but we're just a few weeks away from it, about three months, June the 12th through the 15th, and we need your help. You'll see some signs around if you want to volunteer. We're expecting a lot of kids this year. We need a lot of our own volunteers to help out. So uh, we hope that you'll be a part of it and let us know. Tara Cruz is our children's minister. Let her know if you're interested in helping in any way. We, would, we need you this year, uh, and we hope that you will volunteer Twist and turns is our theme. People have asked, are we having it indoors or outdoors? The last two years, we've had it outdoors. It's been pretty hot out there, hasn't it? So the answer is yes. We're going to do both this year. Some of it's indoors in here. Some of it's outdoors across Glenbrook under the shaded trees over there for outdoor activities. But the rest of it will be in here. So you can pick and choose whether you want to be outside or inside. And we would love to have you to be a part of Vacation Bible School 2023 here at First Baptist Church coming up middle of June. So let us know if you can help us. We would certainly appreciate that. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 through 37. Early in the ministry of Jesus, he spoke the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're examining on Sunday mornings closely, verse by verse, exactly what Jesus said and how it relates to us so we can live closer to what Jesus said as to how we should. Sermon series is entitled Exceed. Jesus began the sermon a few weeks ago as we looked at with the Beatitudes, the types of attitudes that are required to come into the kingdom. It's the initiation into the kingdom, the Beatitudes. And then after that, he talked about your influence. You are salt and you are light. And he talked about the influence as citizens of the kingdom that we are to have. And then he talked about how we relate to the law. You have heard this, said this, but I say to you, and Jesus was taking what we'd always heard and, and increasing the intent or the motive behind that. And then last Sunday we talked about shifting focus, uh, talked about murder, talked about adultery, and Jesus shifted the focus from the hands, not just murdering physically, but with a mouth actually speaking anger against a brother. And then he talked about shifting the focus from the bed, the physical act of adultery, to the mind and the thoughts that go behind it. Now this morning, if you could summarize verses 31 to 37, it would be remembering your place. As citizens of the kingdom, we need to remember our place. So read with me starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not even take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
Did you notice as Jesus started preaching the Sermon on the Mount, how quickly he got into controversial topics? Quickly, wasn't it? I mean, immediately he says, okay, welcome to the kingdom. My, now, by the way, uh, here's what, what you do about your influence. And, and here's about murder. And here's about adultery. And here's about divorce. And all of these hard-hitting topics. Immediately he starts talking about them. And now he tells us as believers, remember your place. So let's look at what he's saying. Verses, first of all, verses 31 and 32. Number one, remembering your place in your vows. Number one, remembering your place in your vows. Jesus said, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now the very first key word in that passage is something you don't see because it's not in English. It's in Greek, not in English. It is not translated into the English language. It is the word day, D-E. It is a conjunction that means now or and or sometimes also or but. But what basically is conjunction that ties together what he's about to say and what he just said. So he begins divorce with a conjunction that something happened previously. What? What did he talk about previously? Lust. Remember, that's how we ended the sermon last Sunday. He talked about lust. Now he goes directly connecting them with the Greek word day into divorce. In Jesus' mind, some of the divorces relate to lust. We desire another person. We desire someone else. Sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, he wasn't either, sometimes divorces are caused because a spouse desires somebody else. I don't know how many times I've counseled with couples and they tell me what's going on. I say, well, do you suspect that he's seeing somebody else or she's seeing somebody Oh, no, 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 no. They were. Sometimes the desire for somebody else makes your spouse not look as good. And you start nitpicking here and nitpicking there. There are all these things that you don't like about them, and then you leave them so you can be with somebody else. So there's a connection sometimes to the lust passage and the divorce passage as they're connected with the day. Now, whenever you, you get your doctoral degree at the end of that time period, you have what's called, sometimes it's called a project, sometimes it's called a dissertation. Uh, it's a major project that you have that is expected to contribute something to the field of study, not just a paper or whatever else is said. You're expected to contribute to the field of study that topic of your concentration. Whenever I was getting my doctorate several years ago, I chose the topic for my project, my dissertation, to be divorce divorce and remarriage. So for 13 months, just about every day, I studied it, I wrote about it, and my final, final work was a 254-page book on divorce and remarriage. Here's a, here's a copy of it on my shelf in there, Family Worship, 
as a source of unity in the divorced and remarried family. That's my final dissertation, 254 pages. I'm not going to read all that to you today. Some of you look like you're getting concerned, like, oh, no. Oh, he wrote a dissertation on this. We're going to be here a while. So, so let me just say I've studied this in depth for 13 months. And let me just summarize. You can't talk about all of it. Let me summarize our time together about divorces and about oaths. First of all, in looking at, 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 the, at divorce, you have to look at the background of the passage. And the background was the law God gave the Israelites about divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Here's verse 1 on your screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now the key word is uncleanness. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, it was the word erva, E-R-V-A. It, it literally means nakedness or shame. If she brings, if a, if a wife brings a husband shame or indecency in some way, then it's okay to divorce her. And Moses said. Now, as time went on in the Jewish nation, they, they couldn't figure out what the word unclean means. What exactly is uncleanness? That gives you cause for divorce. So over the course of time, by the time we get to Jesus in the New Testament, there are two Jewish rabbis that had risen to the top of their interpretation of the word erva, unclean, in Deuteronomy 24.1. Those you'll see on the screen, one of them was called Rabbi Shammai, and he had a very strict interpretation, and the second one was Rabbi Hillel, who had a very liberal interpretation of what the word unclean means. So Shammai said unclean literally means nakedness from the original word. So the only reason that biblical reasons why you can divorce is if your spouse has an affair, adultery. And it's the only reason. That's what Shammai said. Very strict interpretation. However, Rabbi Hillel said erva could mean a lot of different things, not just the act of adultery. It could mean other things as well. And he had a very liberal interpretation of the word unclean, Deuteronomy 24.1. Let me give you some of the examples of what he wrote, Hillel wrote, as to why a man could divorce his wife. Now remember, women could not divorce men in those days. Only men could divorce women. So Rabbi Hillel says a man could divorce his wife for the following reasons. If she was unfaithful, okay, that's what Shammai said. Or if she did not keep the house well. Or if she was not a good cook. Or if she began to age. Hillel said it, not me. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. Or if she lost her looks. Or if he found someone younger or prettier. Or if she was no longer beautiful in the eyes of the man. All of these reasons to divorce her. That's, what, that's how Hillel interpreted the word unclean in Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, question. 
Which of these two rabbis do you think most Jewish men sided with? <laughs> exactly. You got it. Hello. So it was very common in Jesus' day for a man, if he just got tired of his wife, wanted somebody else, she's aging, wants somebody younger, that he just gives her a bill of divorcement and moves right on, and everybody's fine with it because Hillel said it was okay, and he was a learned rabbi. And so Jesus spoke this passage to expose the sham of what they were doing. He sided with Rabbi Shammai. He said, but I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And he was exposing this sham of a system that the Jews had set up that said it was okay. Now, question. What does it mean whenever it says the divorce would make her commit adultery? How is that possible? Remember, New Testament times, a woman could not divorce a man. A man could divorce a woman, but he, she could not divorce him. So a woman by herself had no way of making a living in those days. They didn't have equal rights, couldn't be landowners. Very few jobs were available to them in those biblical days. And so, so if a woman was divorced by a man, it happened all the time for just whatever reason, just because she was getting older, would, would, that, that meant that she had nobody to provide for her. She had no way of living. She had no way of eating. She had nowhere to live. And so, to protect the woman she was given was called a certificate of divorcement, where the husband would give it to her. She kept it on her, and she could prove at any time, I have no one to provide for me. So people would provide acts of charity for her. One way she could live. It was actually a way to protect the woman. And really, if she wanted to thrive, she had to remarry so somebody could take care of her. So if you divorced your wife for just whatever reason, you're forcing her to commit adultery and remarry so she can live. So Jesus exposed their deceit, elevated the treatment of women, and condemned the lust of the Jewish men. Now, divorces in those days are very much like Jewish divorces today, very similar. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years in the Jewish courts. If a Jewish husband and wife want to divorce, both parties must agree to it. Now, that wasn't that, the case until 1,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the man could divorce the wife whether she wanted it or not. Today, from the last 1,000 years in Jewish minds, but the, both must agree. And it most, must be done in the ecclesiastical court. So in other words, if you just go down to the courthouse in any city or county and you get a bill of divorcement, the Jews will not recognize it unless it's done in the ecclesiastical court. Not civil court, but the religious court. So here's what happens. And the reason they say that is because a husband and wife, when they're joined together, they're joined together by God, not by the laws anyway, the courts anyway. They're joined in the eyes of God. And so God has to be the one that says, okay, it's going to be dissolved in the Jewish mind. So 
they get ready to have a, the husband draws up the document. It's called a get, G-E-T. comes from an ancient Aramaic word, but it's called a get. And it's 12 lines long, can't be longer than 12 lines. Every one of them is handwritten for that, those two specific couples. There are no form documents for divorce. They're, done, they're written by the, by the scribe of the husband who he employs, not a lawyer, but a scribe. He'll write the 12 lines out, the details. They'll both sign it. And then after the, the get is drawn up, the husband presents it to his wife in a public format. There have to be two kosher witnesses who witness it. They are, she's then given the bill of divorcement. The ecclesiastical court approves it. And the husband and wife then can no longer be near each other. They can't live in the same complex. They can't, they've got to separate totally. And that's been that way all the way really since biblical days. Very similar. Now, I want you to listen further what Jesus taught about, Ma about divorce in Matthew chapter 19 later on when Pharisees asked him about it. Look at the passage. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, that's the Hillel interpretation. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they're no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate they said to him why then did moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away and he said to them because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Not God's ideal. Divorce is never God's ideal. It was allowed. It was permitted. It was never the ideal. Now, having said that, there are, there are times you get a divorce and you can't do anything about it. Your spouse no longer wants to be married, no wants to be married longer to you. And there are many people who did not want the divorce, would still be married today if the spouse hadn't left. You can't make somebody be married to you. And that's the case sometimes. But the ideal, it was never God's ideal. And he's saying, remember your place and remember your vows in your place. Martin Luther said, quote, We are to fear and love God so that in matters of sex, our words and our conduct are pure and honorable. And the wife and the husband must love each other and respect each other. Listen to the Heidelberg Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm not crazy about everything in it, but it's good on divorce. Quote, All unchastity is condemned by God. We should therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste, disciplined lives, whether in holy wedlock or in a single life. End quote. Now, Jesus said there's one exception. Let's talk about that for a moment, then we'll go into vows. Jesus said, verse 32, that there's one exception for divorce, and that's sexual immorality. What is that? Well, First of all, Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers that gives us this exception. Mark doesn't, Luke doesn't, John doesn't. 
Because of that, some Bible scholars are saying, well, Matthew is the only one to record it, so I wouldn't put too much stock into it. Well, Matthew recorded it, and it's in there for a reason. So we can't just dismiss it. What does it mean? The word sexual immorality that is, that is translated into English sexual, sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. You'll see it on the screen here. It means any sexual uncleanness. You'll probably see the cognate of the word pornography. That's right. Any sexual uncleanness. So pornea is broader than just the physical act of adultery. It includes all types of sexual uncleanness. Yes, even pornographic addictions. Is a pornographic addiction by your spouse biblical grounds for divorce? I say yes because of the word pornea. It's broader than just the act and includes anything that is sexual uncleanness because that breaks a vow between the one flesh concept of a husband and a wife. So remember your place your vows. Number two, remember your place in your oaths, in your promises or your, or your, your oaths. Now look at verses 33 through 37. What I find interesting about this passage, Jesus talked more about your words than he did your marriage. Did you catch that? Two verses on divorce, seven in your speech. So he talked more about your words than he did your spouse. He said, again you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus was talking about Leviticus 19.12. That was the key verse he was talking about. Let's look at it on the screen. Leviticus 19.12 says, you shall not Swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, here's the background. Let me explain again. It makes a lot much more sense when you, when you know the background of what he was talking about. First of all, whenever Jesus made this statement, he's not talking about you swearing in a courtroom, Okay. You know, when you go to the courtroom and you raise your hand and you give an oath that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, and a lot of denominations, well, you shouldn't do that because Jesus said, he's not talking about that. What's he talking about? Here's the background. If you take this passage, Leviticus 19, 12, actually taking oaths and vows, they were not condemned in the Bible. Some people think, oh, they're condemned. They're not condemned. In fact, they're actually commended. A lot of people took oaths. Now, don't take an oath in order to sin. That happened in 1 Samuel 25. Don't take an oath frivolously or indiscriminately. But there's nothing wrong with oath-taking. The early believers, the early church did not see anything in what Jesus said as prohibiting them from making a promise. Paul took an oath. Acts 18, 18. Remember that? He took an oath after Jesus said that. Jesus testified under oath. His trial. An angel in Revelation 10 swore an oath 
in verses 5 and 6 from heaven. So there doesn't appear to be anything wrong with making a promise. Then what was he talking about? Now again, by the time the New Testament got here, it got around to where Leviticus 19.12 was being misinterpreted. If they wanted to get around a law, Jews figured out a way to get around it. And they did with making promises. Jewish rabbis invented a system here as to how you could get around breaking a promise and still be right with God. Boy, those Jewish rabbis, they're really something about all this, aren't they? And so they came up with another system, like, a, like they did with the divorce. And here's what they said. If you make a promise, but you did not invoke the name of God, it doesn't count. Remember in Leviticus 19, 12? If the name of the Lord shall not be profane. So, they said, if you make a promise and you use God's name in it, then you have to keep it. Otherwise, you profane his name. But if you swear by anything else, you don't have to keep your word. You can lie all you want. Because back in those days, they would make promises. I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by the temple. They even would swear by the gold in the temple. I swear by the gold in the temple. We do the same thing. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on the Bible. We do the same thing. But if you didn't say, I swear by the name of God, you didn't have to keep your vows. It was a way of not having to do what you said you'd do. It's a get-out-of-the-oath-free card. We kind of do the same thing, don't we? Cross our fingers and put it behind our back. I did that to my brother. We'd be growing up, and he'd be his turn to play, and he'd have a candy bar or a Coke, and I'd say, I'll hold it for you. No, you'll eat it. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Promise? I promise. You promise? I promise. And then I'd eat it. You promised. I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> same thing. It's the same thing. And so Jesus saw through all that deceit and all that sham that had developed. And he said, listen, don't swear by this and swear by that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. My people should be people of truth because I'm known as truth. Don't have a lying tongue and trying to always be getting out of your promises and your oaths, your vows. This is a sham. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. But there appears to be something else going on in this passage. Let me mention it to you, see what you think. Is there more at play in what Jesus said in verses 33 through 37 other than just being truthful? Maybe. Because Jesus said, and the word that word is we're going to look at it here in just a moment, but Jesus, verse 36, you can't make one hair white, one hair black. What on earth is he talking about? He could be saying, remember your place. You don't have the power to fulfill an oath anyway. You're not God. 
Let's say you make a, make a promise, you make a vow. I'm going to do this. You can't give yourself the energy to do it. And you can't give yourself the breath to do it. You are under someone greater than you who gives you everything. So remember your place under me. You can't fulfill your vow yourself anyway. Maybe, because he says you can't make one hair water black. Who are you? You're not omnipotent. So who are you to make vows? You're not God. You're not the ultimate. You can't give yourself what you need to fulfill a vow. So by making a promise, you're setting yourself up as God. I'll do this. I'll promise I'll do that. Who are you to? You don't know what a day brings. You may not be able to move in the morning. You're paralyzed. You don't know that. So remember your place. Because a couple of words that are used here seem to indicate maybe this is what he's talking about. Let's look at them. Verse 33, whenever the phrase swear falsely, you'll see it on the screen there. It's a compound word, orchio, with the prefix epi in front of it. It means to be under the word, under somebody else's authority. Also means to break one's oath, means to lie, under the word. And then the second one, verse 34, where the phrase says take an oath, it's omnuo. It means to promise something by someone greater than you. It appears there could be a part of this passage, maybe all the passage, in which he's talking about remember who you are and remember your place. That your yes be yes, your no be no, you're under authority. You don't have all power to fulfill every vow out there. You're not God. So remember your place in your vows. Remember your place in your oaths. Now, we have two prohibitions this morning. One about divorce and one about oath-taking. As with any prohibition in Scripture, there is a principle behind why it's prohibited. What are those principles? I believe the principles are God's values. What does God value? God values faithfulness in marriage. And God values truthfulness when you open your mouth. God values faithfulness. And God values truthfulness. Why? Because God is faithful and God is truthful. And folks, whenever you're faithful and whenever you're truthful, you're acting like God. That's why he values it. Back in 1987, Stephen Curtis Chapman began his career as a contemporary Christian musician. He wrote a song, 1987, the first year he started singing, that was on his first album. The album was entitled First Hand. And he wrote a song, many of you probably still remember, and the title of it is, My Redeemer is Faithful and True. And in the song, Stephen Curtis Chapman emphasized two strong features of God. He's faithful, 
and he's true. And little did Stephen Curtis Chapman know how much he would need the words of his own song 21 years later. Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife Mary Beth have six kids. They have three biological children and they have three adopted children from China. In 2008, the youngest of his children, a little girl named Maria from China, had just turned five years old, eight days before. She saw her big brother Will driving down the street. Will had been to an audition for a musical in the high school and he was coming home. She saw Will and she wanted him to play with her. So she was running toward Will, wanted him to play with her on the monkey bars. Will didn't see Maria, so he turned into the driveway and he ran over her and he killed her. Stephen Curtis Chapman was devastated, as was his whole family. And he contemplated giving up his music, not singing anymore. But he remembered the words of 21 years earlier, what he'd written. As I look back on the road I've traveled, I see so many times he's carried me through. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life, my Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he said, he will do. And every morning his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. And whenever we go through difficult times, if it's in marriage or if it's in life, may our characteristics be just like our God, faithful and truthful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your word and thank you for how you've once again given us a challenge from this powerful sermon powerful sermon on the mount god and as we look at it each week i just i just pray the power of those words that jesus spoke will continue to resonate with us father i i pray for those in our congregation they've never come into the truth to begin with they've never they're not citizens of the kingdom they've never been saved never prayed a prayer received christ as savior repenting of their sins and so lord i i just pray that today will be the day that they do that lord but i also pray for those in our midst today that that maybe their marriage is not good or maybe they're thinking about breaking those vows or, or maybe there's promises they've made that they've not kept or they don't want to keep. Lord, would you help us today to be faithful, to be true, just like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.